Well, it is good to have each of you here with us on this, as Tim said, beautiful fall morning. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series entitled The Elephant in the Room. And if you haven't been here with us, we've been trying to tackle issues of sexuality and look at what does God's Word have to say about those and how do we face those and encounter those as we are confronted with them. And uh, this morning we're going to tackle what may be the biggest cultural issue of our day over the past five years. Um, from the push in the media to normalize same-sex relationships and marriage to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court the decision to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act, this issue has gone from the back burner to front and center with lightning speed that's never been experienced before in our culture. In the midst of this, people of faith have been blindsided, caught off guard, felt paralyzed, have lashed out in anger and hate, not at all representing the Savior who they claim to love, and have now felt incredibly marginalized. Uh, but before we tackle this, I want to give you Uh, I want to say a couple of things this morning. The first thing I want to say is I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions that you're going to have on this issue today. Um, As a matter of fact, I'm likely going to stir up more questions than I'm going to answer for you. But we want to answer your questions. And so on the screen is going to come a a link uh, for you to um, uh, send us your questions. You can send us your questions anonymously about any of the last couple weeks. Um, or about the service today. Um, if you want to remember that, just take a picture of it with your phone. It'll also be in the Slice of Light this week. Um, but we want to hear your questions. We're planning the week after Thanksgiving to have a Q&A week to answer questions related to this issue to try to add some more clarity for the things that I won't be able to speak into this morning. There are some resources out there to help you as well. Um, there's a couple of them. Um, then they're gonna, the list is going to come up on the screen, I believe. The first is, What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, the second is, Same Sex Attraction in the Church by a vicar in uh, England. Uh, same Sex Attraction all of his life, but still honoring God and serving the church. And Love and Delight, the Gospel, the Homosexual, and the Church. And the, um, the first book is God Anti Gay. I must have promoted this book so well when I put these on the back table there, somebody took it home with them. Um, but that little booklet is God Anti Gay. It's about 80 pages. And um, I would strongly encourage every family in this church to buy a copy of that and to read through it. It's, um, it's not very long, and uh, if you're trying to find some time to read it, just put it in the bathroom by the toilet. You'll get time, you'll get through it, you know, in time, but you'll get through it. So, um, but it's a great resource to help you navigate these issues um, and to try to understand them. But before we take a look at what God has to say about these issues this morning, I think we need to take a moment and pause and... As we pause this morning, um, I think that we're all coming to this issue from different experiences. Um, For some of you, you just kind of wish this issue would go away. You don't know what to do with it. It disgusts you. You hate it. You just wish it would go away. And um, it doesn't. It just seems to be becoming more and more predominant. For others of you, you're really confused. Because you know what God says, and you kind of have this belief in what God says, but <clears throat> that belief in what God says is being challenged by people all over the place. And, 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 and you recognize that some people might choose this lifestyle, but then it even people who claim to follow Jesus choose this lifestyle, and it even more confuses you. And so you just feel confused about this whole issue. You know, How do I live out my faith, and yet I don't agree with some of these things? And for the others of you this morning... We're going to talk about something that maybe is a real struggle for you. Maybe is something that's going on inside that you haven't said a word to anybody, but it's a real struggle for you. 
and you've prayed and asked God to get rid of this, you've done everything you can to get rid of it, it just won't go away, and you don't know what to do about that. And so I hope this morning offers a little bit of direction to you as well. But this morning, before we look into anything else, I think we need to, first of all, just take a moment and stop and recognize where we're at. And recognize that, um, don't worry, that'll be gone in a few weeks. We're across the hall, so you won't hear the rumbling up there. They're all alive, I'm sure. Um, I don't know what youth, what comes to your mind when you think of the uh, LGBTQ community. But I think there's some things we need to be honest about. <clears throat> and I think there's some things we need to take responsibility collectively as people who claim to follow Jesus. I think the first thing we need to do is we need to apologize for our hatred and disdain and for the abuse that we've shown to people who are very different than we are. Um, the reputation of Christians is that they're homophobic. Homophobic means irrational fear, <clears throat> aversion, or discrimination against those who are homosexuals. We've had Christian communicators on national media blame the homosexual community for horrible tragedies that have befallen our country like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. Um, maybe inwardly you've cheered when you've seen a sign that says, God hates fags on the TV or when you've driven by somewhere. The truth is, God doesn't hate homosexuals. God doesn't hate anyone. God loves you in spite of people of faith. And you have a story, and we need to be willing to listen to that story. To the people of the LGBTQ community, you matter to God. He loves you. He made you. And you're not a second-class citizen, regardless of your choices or actions. I hope you matter to people here at CCC. Because our values, our, our purpose is that we love God and we love others. And one of our first values is gracious acceptance. That regardless of your past, regardless of your story, we love and accept you for who you are right where you are. We don't condone or approve sin. But the gospel is not just for heterosexual sinners only. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. And so as we dive into this subject this morning, people of faith have felt like there's one of two extremes and they don't like either one of them. They felt like one extreme is that I have to agree with and support and cheer and celebrate everyone who comes out, everyone who you know, gets married, everyone who's in a relationship, but I'm not sure I want to do that. But the only other option I know is to be viewed as a homophobe and, and a hater and, and someone who just wants nothing to do and is revolted by people who choose that lifestyle. And so this morning, we're going to look at some passages of Scripture that, for some of you may not be new, for some of you it might be, that talk about this issue. We're going to talk about how those that disagree with homosexuality view these passages and how those that support them view these passages. Try to get some clarity about that. And at the end of the day, have a sense of what is it that God wants us to do. Because we have to start, if we're people of faith, with what does God say about this? 
Our our culture says the starting point is, what do you think and feel about this? That's what the culture says, and then you get to live that out. But God says, I want you to start with, what do I say about that? And then let what I say drive how you choose to live, not how you think or feel. Not to ignore those, not to demean or belittle those, but that's not the starting point. That's further down the road. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, or a Bible with you, if you turn to Genesis 19... Genesis 19 is where we're going to start this morning. If you don't have a Bible, our guys have some, they'll pass them out to you. And if you don't have one of your own, we'd love to encourage you just to take this with you and mark these places and read them this week. You can also follow them on your phone or tablet um, as well this morning. So Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is where we're going to start. Page 13, the Bibles that the guys are distributing to you. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 4. Let me read the story. It says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This, these, these, this fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down his door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have any, anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in this city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against this people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So what's happening in this story? What's happening in this story is Lot was Abraham's nephew and God had promised to Abraham this land and the land of Israel. And his nephew said, what part do I get? And and Abraham said, why don't you choose what you want and I'll take the leftovers. Well, Lot took the the best area, the best parcel, the most uh, fertile piece of property that he could find and that included the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and that's where Lot moved in. And Abraham took the other part that was left over. And because of the, the sin that God observed in the city of Sodom, God sent two angels to warn Lot, said, there's judgment coming, I want you to get out, and that's where this story unfolds. The two individuals are two angels that God sent to this passage. But often this passage is used to give evidence that when there's homosexual behavior, God is going to bring judgment and God is going to destroy it and wipe it out. That's often how this passage is referred to. But this passage is not about two individuals in a consensual, monogamous, homosexual relationship. This is a passage about gang rape. That's what this is a passage about. So why did God judge Sodom? Why did God judge Sodom? Most people of faith would say because of the homosexuality. But look what God says in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. He says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So what's God saying in that verse about Sodom? They were selfish and they didn't take care of other people. They were not very hospitable, right? And so the revisionists, for those that would kind of take the scriptures and say, no, it doesn't say that, it says this to support their position, they would say, that's why God judged Sodom. That's why. But there's another verse, verse 50, and look what verse 50 says. 
They were haughty and did detestable things before me. That word detestable, we're going to come back to that a little bit later and see some things about that. So why did God destroy the city? We destroyed the city ultimately because of their sin. Not because of a particular sin, but because of their sin. That's why God destroyed the city. And we have to be very careful to use this passage to support that God will bring down judgment on a nation. God will bring down horrific things on a nation, on a people, because this sin exists in that nation and among those people. In the book of Judges, which we're going to look at next year, there's, a, there's, a, there's an awful story of heterosexual gang rape. And to say that based on Genesis 19, all homosexual behavior is wrong and God judges us in this way is to also say that all heterosexual sin is wrong and God judges it in the same way he did in the book of Judges. This chapter doesn't condemn or approve two individuals in a homosexual relationship. It just doesn't. It says that God will bring judgment on people that disregard him, that turn their back on him. And that's what it points to. Let's go to another passage. Let's turn a few books over to the story of Leviticus, the story of the book of Leviticus. You're in Genesis, go to Exodus, Leviticus is two books over. Let's go to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. Verse 22. <clears throat> and Leviticus 18:22 it says this. It says do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is, there's that word again, detestable. Detestable. Now turn over to Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20. And look at verse 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is, there's that word again, detestable. They are to be put to death, their blood will be on their own heads. So that's why some people say homosexuals should be killed from this passage. Right from here. But there's a couple questions here. The first question is what type of sin? If that the passage in Genesis 19 was this kind of gang violence and rape, what's the passage in this? What's God, what's God talking about here? He's talking about two individuals of the same gender being involved in a relationship, two men as if they would be with a woman. But the question that's often raised about this is, but that's in the Old Testament. And there's a bunch of weird rules in the Old Testament. We don't have to follow all the weird rules of the Old Testament. It says in the Old Testament, we don't, we're not supposed to eat shellfish. I won't ask for a raise of hands how many people eat shellfish. It also says in the Old Testament, we're not supposed to eat bacon. Now, that number would be higher if I asked you to say how many of you eat bacon, you know. It also says you're not supposed to wear clothing where there's two kinds of fabrics that are mixed together. So it's kind of obvious that there's some things in the Old Testament that still don't apply this one fits into that category as well, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's three different kinds of laws. There's a moral law that controls our behavior. There's a civil law, which is the government. Remember, that Israel didn't exist before God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a people, a nation from you. So he had to give them some rules. How are they going to function as a nation? And then there were ceremonial laws. And these were related to the sacrifices that they performed. The feast and the celebration. The book of Numbers, Leviticus of Numbers, has all of those. So there's moral, there's civil, and there's ceremonial. So how do we know if we're supposed to follow what's in the Old Testament? What did Jesus say about this? Well, Jesus said, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of it all. 
in Matthew 5.17, I came to complete or fulfill it. It says it wasn't finished yet. I came to complete or fulfill the law. That's what Jesus said. Jesus, Peter, and Paul repeatedly repeated Levitical moral laws that apply to us today. So there's laws about behavior and how we relate to one another and how we relate to family and relatives repeated over and over again by Jesus, Peter, and Paul. So some questions for us to ask, how do we know if something in the Old Testament is for us today? How do we know? Well, here's a couple questions for you to ask yourself. The first is, is it repeated in the New Testament? Is it repeated in the New Testament? In the book of Leviticus, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what? Jesus repeated it. So it's for us for today. Here's another question. Um, Is it about food? Is it about food? God told Peter that all foods are okay, so pass the bacon. We're good on the bacon. Some of you are like, whew, glad to hear that. You know, I was a little unsure about that, you know. Glad to hear about the bacon, you know. There's a story about Peter where God said to Peter, who didn't eat certain foods, and God revealed to him that all of these things are available for you. What about ceremonial laws? Is it about ceremony or sacrifice? Well, in the book of Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, because Christ came and died on the cross, He completed the law. And those sacrifices that they had to go through for the forgiveness of their sins to show their humility and their repentance, those are all done if you choose to accept Jesus. They're all done. The book of Hebrews validates that and says the same thing. And lastly, is it a civil law for the nation of Israel? Is it just a civil law only for the nation of Israel? So some questions, if someone says to you about discussing this issue of homosexuality, those are just in the Old Testament. There's some crazy, whacked-out stuff. We don't have to do that. Well, we don't have to do all of it, but there are a few things. There are a few things. Another thing for you to consider is this word detestable. Um, the, the act of homosexuality is the only thing that the Bible uses where it says God calls it detestable. The only thing. Nothing else in the Bible. And so I would be very careful to say that a sin that God hates does not apply today. Lastly, in Leviticus 20, and I'm not going to take the time to read all the way through it, but if you start in verse 10 and read down through verse 21, it talks about all different kinds of sexual sin. It talks about different kinds of adultery, different kinds of incest, um, different types of polygamy. All of those things in the New Testament, it says they are wrong. They are wrong. They are wrong. There's only one section that's a bit confusing to us in the middle of the passage where it talks about a woman during her monthly period that, that she is considered ceremonial unclean and not to go in the temple. He's like, what's that all about? Why is that in the middle of this? Well, that's connected to that ceremonial law. Because the only blood that was permitted in the temple, in the place of worship, was from the sacrifice. And so as part of the ritual, not that the woman, there was anything wrong with the woman, but because of the issue that she had to deal with, that God had created, he said there had to be some boundaries set around that for that time period. But all the rest of those laws are repeated in the New Testament. Let's go to the New Testament and look at what God says about this in the New Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Page 911. 
Romans 1, page 911. The book of Romans is written by Paul, and he started these churches all over the known world, and he wrote the book of Romans as a treatise or a summary of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation. He wanted them to understand what's the essence of the gospel. And in the first three chapters, he talked about the people that turned their back on the gospel. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, they turn their back, they reject the gospel. And look in verse 21, he starts to talk about one group of those individuals. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, here's a trade. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. First thing Paul says is there was this trade for the glory and the wonder of God for an image of man. That's the first trade. He goes on to describe another one in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in their sexual desire, in the, desires, in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. At the core, that's where sin occurs for all of us. is when we trade, instead of worshiping and honoring and choosing to follow God, we trade and we worship ourselves or something made by human hands. He goes on in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now for those individuals that look at this passage really as a support of a homosexual lifestyle, they would look at verse 26 and they would say, well, that's talking about those who have the desire, women who have a desire for men. They shouldn't trade that off. But, but I'm a woman and I have a desire for other women and that's a natural desire. What I believe God's talk, Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about natural desire. He's talking about natural design. So what do you mean by that? God's design is for man and woman to have a relationship with each other. That's God's design. Desire is something that follows. It follows design. It doesn't precede it. You say, John, you're going to have to explain that a little bit further. There's all kinds of things that you and I desire or we think we want to do that we have to decide, should I do that or not? That might not be a good thing if I do it. That's desires. I don't know if it's because I like watching action movies, but I kind of have this fantasy of, of, of robbing a store and being on a high-speed chase and the police chasing me and I'm driving very, very fast. I don't know why that pops into my head every once in a while. It's kind of crazy. I'm glad I haven't acted out on that. You know, you'd be seeing me on the nightly news and visiting me in prison if that was the case. But, you know, drive fast, you know, elude them, you know, whatever, something crazy like that. But we all have these desires, these things that kind of float to the surface, and they can be all different kinds of things. We've been talking about the sexual arena, but we're going to see in a few minutes that Paul puts a whole lot of things in this category called sin, of which we all fall into. But he says, 
He starts with our design and then the desire. And so for those that would find support in this, they would say, no, my desire is the beginning point. Paul says, no, your design is the beginning point. And then it's your desires that follow. And you have to evaluate those desires and say, is this something that I can live out and honor God with? Or is this something that I need to restrain myself or ask God to help me deal with? Paul also says something very significant in this passage. Um, You know, he says they were inflamed with lust. He's speaking of consensual sexual behavior in this passage. Um, He also is talking about that the core essence for many individuals who struggle with this area is not really an issue of desire. It's really an issue of who they worship, who they worship. You see, homosexuality does not provoke God's wrath, but it's a consequence of man's idolatrous exchange. It's an exchange of what I want for what God wants. Because our greatest problem is not homosexuality, it's idolatry. It's worshiping someone other than God. They say, well, John, you're speaking a little bit about those who kind of, they find themselves in this lifestyle because of their life circumstances. Um, Are there people that are born with this struggle? Are there people that are born with this struggle? And it was believed for a long period of time that, that that was not true until there were scientific cases of individuals who were born with both male and female genitalia. And then someone had to decide what they were going to be, what their sexuality would be. And that prompted more and more research and more and more study. And historically, it was all believed that an individual's choice to be involved in this way of lifestyle was simply a sinful choice. They traded, like this passage talks about. But the truth is, they've been able to do study and research and identify that there are individuals who are born with a stronger desire for the same sex than for the opposite sex. Does that make their desire something that they should be then free to live out? We all have desires. Some of those desires are from God and they're good desires. Um, Some of you might be feeling your stomach rumbling right now. That's a desire. Unfortunately, I have no way to do anything for you to help you with that desire right now. But there are desires that God gives to us that are natural desires that we live out. There are also desires that come and are part of our lives because of what? We live in a sinful broken world and it's the sinner in us that fuels that desire more than anything and we have to decide what am I going to do about that what am I going to do about that we need to learn to view this as a struggle to avoid sin in the same way that those with opposite sex attraction as we've talked about over the last few weeks Um, choose not to be involved in those relationships sexually until marriage. You may be thinking, John, I I hear you and I understand that, but it just doesn't seem fair that someone who might have this struggle, that they they don't get to enjoy having a family, or they, you know, I thought God loves them and wants them to live out, you know, who God's made them to be. Those are all honest and important questions that need to be asked. And I hope you come back next week and hear a real-life story of what it is like to walk in this. 
Let's look at another passage. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Just the next book. Romans, 1 Corinthians is the very next book. First Corinthians 6, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, is a situational letter. So Paul's writing to specific situations. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he's writing to two people that have a conflict. And they're, they're so upset about this conflict, they're going to take one another to court and sue one another. And Paul says, do not do that if you both came to be followers of Jesus. Don't do that. Don't do that. He said, instead, find someone who's a person of faith, come before them, tell them your dilemma, and then be willing to accept whatever they recommend on your behalf. In the midst of this, he's talking about people who are doing wrong and the consequence of that. And then in verse 9, he kind of goes on this little rant. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In the midst of this list of all these things that Paul says are not going to enter God's kingdom, he has this phrase there in verse 9, he says, men who have sex with men. Now what Paul's doing in this passage is he's taking two words that come from the Greek language. He's basically put them together in one phrase. One phrase. And the one word speaks to men who have somewhat of an effeminate um, relating pattern or appearance. And the other one are men who are in a consensual homosexual relationship. And Paul puts those things together and he basically says, these things are wrong. This is serious and this is sinful. But notice Paul doesn't separate this one sin from all of these other sins. Look what he lists there in verse 10. Thieves, greed, drunkards, slanders, swindlers. Um, I'm not sure I fully understand why, especially in the church community, we've taken this one sin and isolated it, separate from all others. But when you begin with a starting point that says we're all sinners, and we all sin, and apart from the grace and mercy of God, we have no hope. It changes a lot of how we view this. Paul does not say this is a lifestyle to celebrate, but it's a sin that God wants to forgive. And lastly, look what he says in verse 11. He says, and this is what some of you were. Past tense. Can someone in this lifestyle change? Some can. Some can. How can they change? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> in preparation for this message, I've done a lot of reading on this issue, read a lot of stories of people that struggle with this. I've read stories of individuals that talk about a struggle with same-sex attraction but a desire to honor God and pursue a relationship, um, enter a marriage, and over a period of time those desires are lessened and they're able to live in a relationship 
as a husband and wife, have children and a family. I read stories of others who have chosen to pursue that same path and in spite of seeking to honor God, those desires are still strong in which they don't really know what to do with them, but they still seek to honor God and live in the relationship that God has placed them within and accept that as a struggle that they will live with relying on God for His help and His mercy and grace. I've also read of others who've chosen not to enter a marriage, but have chosen to live celibate and not engage their desires, even though those desires are real and are powerful and strong, but choose to honor God with their lives. I'm not going to enter another relationship, but I'm going to seek to honor God and live out my days honoring and blessing Him with my life. Paul says, for some, there was a change only because of the grace of God. 1 Timothy 8, 1 Timothy chapter 1, one last passage for us to look at. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murders. Verse 10. For the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for the slave traders, the liars, and the perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Again, Paul very clearly says, for those that are practicing homosexuality, the law and God's consequences for them, that this is a sin that violates God's word. Um, but he doesn't separate that or exclude that from anything else on this list. What Paul is condemning here is not someone who struggles with an attraction or desire. He's condemning the practice of this activity. The practice of this activity. And I would have to say for me, as I've dove into this subject, that has been something that God has opened my eyes to help me see and understand and recognize that there are people that love God, there are people that will live with this struggle, just like struggles that each one of us has. I remember being extremely disappointed on my honeymoon that my struggle with lust didn't go away. Thought it was gone. Still got it. Still got it. And so I think for each of us to recognize that there are struggles in this life, we all encounter individuals whose struggles are different than ours. But what God calls us to do is recognize our sin, to see our sinfulness, and to say, God, I want to honor you with my life. And I want to honor you in my struggle. The bottom line is this. That God opposes all homosexual and heterosexual activity outside the bounds of a man and a woman committed to marriage. Not just homosexual activity but all sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. So you say, well, John, I understand what you're telling me. I understand what the Bible has to say. It, it, 
maybe kind of, I learned a few things, maybe reinforced what I believe. I'm still not sure what I'm supposed to do with this brother or sister that I love or this aunt or uncle who's come out recently or this friend that I work with. What am I supposed to do? I came across this story that I think might provide some direction for us. On June 16th, 2012, Dan Cathy, CEO of Chick-fil-A, inadvertently prompted a nationwide controversy by stating that God is the one who defines marriage. You remember when that happened? A little more than four years ago? Mayors in Chicago and Boston threatened to boycott Chick-fil-A. Edens and Kissens follows. The firestorm died down within a few weeks, but Dan Cathy did not withdraw in fear or counterattack in anger. So what did he do? I don't know if many of you know what he did, but I'm going to tell you what he did. What he did. He called Shane Winmeyer. Shane has been a leader in the LGBT movement for many years. He's the founder of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgender college students. Shane had initiated a national campaign against Chick-fil-A, yet Dan Cathy called him and they spoke over the phone for an hour. Dan never asked Shane to back off his opposition of Chick-fil-A but listened intently to Shane's concerns. Dan and Shane became friends. Shane joined Dan and his box as his honored guest at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. In his article, Shane's article, entitled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan, Kathy, and Chick-fil-A, Shane described the friendship he and Dan formed. Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he never offered apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. On Dan's page on his Kathy family website, Matthew 6.33 is prominent. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. If Dan Kathy <clears throat> were seeking his own kingdom, looking at the moral controversy through the lens of memory or marketing, he would never have befriended Shane. He would have fought fire with fire and further convinced the homosexual community that he is a hater. Or Dan might have modified his moral convictions to conform to our cultural standard. Instead, Dan refused to allow a nationwide controversy to blind his vision. He saw individuals, not a movement. And he responded with love, not antagonism. Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Even when we love, though we will not always be loved, Jesus warned, you might be hated or you will be hated for my name's sake. Very powerful illustration of what God calls us to do. You know, for us as a church, I think we have to ask ourselves at the really core level, how do we view this issue and people who struggle with same-sex attraction? Does God view this, as sinful, this homosexual activity as sin? Yes, He does. Does God view it as greater than any other sin? No, He does not. Remember who Jesus welcomed? People who were very different than He was. With that might come lots of questions about what this means for our church, and I encourage you to send those to us because we're going to answer them. We're going to answer them. What does this mean for you? 
someone comes out, a family member that you love, I think you thank them for their honesty, first of all. And then you listen to their struggle. And then you say, God, what does loving them well look like for me? What does loving them well look like for me? And it may be very different for different people. This morning, if this is your struggle, I want to challenge you to talk to God about it because it doesn't define you. It does not have to define you. If you are a follower of God, if you are one of His own, that is what defines you. Talk to a trusted friend or spiritual advisor. Because regardless of our story, regardless of our struggle, what God wants more than anything is He wants to transform our lives. It doesn't mean He's going to take away our struggle. Paul prayed three times, God, remove this struggle from me, remove it from me. And finally he got to the point of saying, this is just going to be something I'm going to live with all of my days. I don't like that. I don't like that. I think if I do enough of the right things, if I deal enough with the junk in my past, if I, if I, I should be able to get rid of this and I've had to come to grips with some stuff I'm just going to live with. Because then I need God's grace and His strength and it's not on me. I want to close with this song and my prayer is that this song would be a song that no matter what your story is, no matter what your struggle is, that this is what God wants to see happen in your life. Listen to this song.